After that build-up last night by Dr. Lennox saying that I was going to have this great presentation, I really got scared because I hadn't really prepared anything. Because that really wasn't on the agenda, but I, I felt then obliged to prepare something. And I want you to know I am not Dr. Lennox. So I cannot answer things that may have arisen during his talk. There's a good chance that I can't. But one of my... One of the, the, the saving things for me is that last night Dr. Lennox said when a scientist speaks beyond his field of science, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So if you have any particular questions about organic chemistry, I will field those. But uh, beyond that, I'm not sure I'll be able to field them. And I don't know the theology and I don't know the, the philosophy that he does. So. Um, the topic last night was his science buried God. And so what I'll do is I'll give you my, my own views in this. You heard, you heard Dr. Lennox's views. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about some of the things. And, and, and Dr. Lennox shared something about his coming to faith, how he grew up in a home where, where there was this faith expression and uh, uh, it was very active in his family. Mine is, is very much unlike that. Although I grew up in a nurturing home, I had a mother and a father and who are both still alive today. And, and uh, it wasn't a broken home. It was an intact home and remains to be in that state. But when I was growing up, I, it was a Jewish home. I grew up as a, as a Jew and a, I, and, uh, in New York City in a very secular family. And, I, and so God was never discussed in my home. It was never a topic of interest. Uh, it just never came up. And we would go to the synagogue once or twice a year during, during the, the, the holy days. And, and uh, uh, the only time I went to the synagogue regularly was when I was about 13. There were bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs to go to a couple every week because I grew up around Jewish people and that was, that was my community. Well, I wanted to be a New York State trooper and I couldn't get into the academy because I was colorblind. And so I was going to study forensic science, and then I remember my dad, I was 17 years old, and I was looking at schools in, in forensics. He said, why don't you just take a, a, a degree more generally in chemistry, and then, then you, can, uh, you can specialize after that. And the amazing thing to me now, looking back, is that at 17 years old, I, I readily took my father's advice. And... Uh, and then what happened was, when I was a sophomore, I took organic chemistry. And I just thought this was the most amazing subject. I just loved it. You know, you get these big, thick books. It was the same, really big, thick books. But in my day, there weren't any color pictures. So it was all black and white. <clears throat> but there were, there were always problems assigned at the end of the chapters, and I would do those problems, but then I would do all the problems that had not been assigned. I would do every problem in the book, and I would, uh, um, I just, just would go up on Friday nights and find an empty classroom because they were all unused on Friday nights, and then <clears throat> I would just work chemistry problems, and then all day Saturday I would just work chemistry problems. And I went from, I went, to Syracuse, Purdue, Wisconsin, and Stanford. And I never attended a collegiate sporting event. None. None. Because I just, I thought this was the greatest time when there were football games, the library was empty, the campus, and I could just study wherever I wanted. And it was, it was quiet. So that, that's how much I fell in love with this subject. 
And so much so that, that I see molecular structure in, in, everything that I, in everything that I look at. So I can look at hair and I immediately, in my mind's eye, <clears throat> I'm thinking of the protein structure of the hair. And if I see it more curly, I'm envisioning more disulfide linkages. And I see, it, it just happens to me, I look at wood and it, boom, immediately I see the carbohydrate structures and the alignment of the strands. So everything to me is molecular structure. And I say this because it will... It, it will reflect upon some of the things that I'm going to say later. But even when I speak to people, sometimes it can be a hindrance. Because as I'm speaking to them, I start looking in their eye. And I'm imagining that as I'm speaking, there's the firing of the neurons. And there's, there's this electrical impulse and this immediate synthesis of proteins that's occurring in their brain to give them the short-term memories I'm speaking. And I know that as they go to sleep tonight, that's going to start transferring into a long-term memory. And as I'm speaking to them, my mind keeps reflecting on what their brain chemistry must be doing. And it's a distraction because sometimes I don't hear what they're saying because I'm too busy thinking about the molecular structure. But I see structure in everything. I was 18 years old. I was in my freshman year and uh, I was doing laundry in the laundry room. It was August of my freshman year, so I know it must have been very early in the semester. And uh, uh, there was a young man in there doing, doing his laundry, and, and we got to talking, and he, had, he was on the Syracuse University football team, and he lived on the same floor that I did. It was a, it was a 20-story tall um, uh, grad, uh, undergraduate dormitory. And uh, <clears throat> so I asked him if he wanted to play professional football when he graduated. He told me, oh, no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, well, what do you want to do? <clears throat> he said, uh, uh, lay ministry. And I had no idea what lay ministry is. And he, he said, I said, what's lay ministry? He said, oh, maybe a missionary or something like that. And I said, missionary? I, I didn't even know that missionaries existed today or back then. I had thought, you know, this is 1977. We have TV. Why do you need missionaries? Just turn on the TV. You can see Billy Graham. I mean, why, why go to the mission field? So he told me he wanted to give me an illustration of the gospel. And so I invited him to my room and, and uh, I said, yeah, you, you, you come. And we had set up some time for him to come. And, and sure enough, he came knocking on the door. And he, he had me read a verse. And the first verse I read, uh, he was with the Navigators Campus Ministry. And he had me read this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. And he, he looked at me a bit surprised. But in modern secular Judaism, we don't reflect upon sin. I mean, we just never thought about it. I mean, maybe some people did. I never did. And, and I said to him, how could I be a sinner? I've never robbed a bank and I've never killed anyone. How could I be a sinner? So he showed me a portion that Jesus had said out of, out of uh, Gospel according to Matthew. And in, in the traditional navigator's way, he opened the Bible and he had me read it. And I read this verse and it said, Jesus said, if, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And that really hit me. And the reason it really hit me is because I was already addicted to pornography. I became addicted at the age of 14. I was working in a gas station just outside New York City where the, it's on a highway and, and, and the owner owned gas stations on each side of the road. And I used to clean up the... the uh, the, the uh, parking lots 
And on Friday nights, the salesmen would throw away their magazines on the way home for the weekend. And I'd pick up these magazines, and I readily at that age became addicted to pornography. There, of course, was no internet in those days. And, and uh, when I got to college, I didn't think anybody knew about this. And then all of a sudden, I read the words of this man from 2,000 years ago, and it just rocked me. And I thought, how would he know? And I realized at that moment that I was a sinner. Then he had me read several other verses about how while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's not by works, in Ephesians, it's not by works that we are saved. But it is, it, it is by faith in God that we are saved. It's not anything that I can do. And all of this was new to me. And then in November, and then I, I started attending a Bible study taught by one of the Navigator's uh, campus ministers in, in the dormitory, and I'd attend that each week, and out of, it was the, out of the Gospel of John. And then in August of my freshman year, and I had met several Christians, and I, I never grew up like that. In that part of New York where I am from, Jews, it was all Jews. I mean, I went to, in my elementary school, everybody was Jewish, except there was one Italian kid, and there was, there was the, the African-Americans that were bussed in from the inner city. And that was it. I mean, you were either an African-American and bussed in, or you were Jewish, or there was one Italian family. That was it. <clears throat> so I had never really thought about these things. But now it was November 7th, 1977, <clears throat> and I was really impacted by the things that I had heard. And I don't know why I did this, but I got down on my knees that day. I was all alone in my room. And I said, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner and come into my life. And at that moment, it was as if Jesus was standing in my room. I felt the forgiveness of God shower upon me and I was surprised because I'd never felt like this before. And I remember as I was on my knees, somebody was standing in my room. Now, my roommate wasn't there. The door was closed, but somebody was standing in my room. And I opened my eyes. And I didn't see anybody, but the presence was right in front of me. So strongly that I just started to weep like a baby. And I didn't know what's coming over me. And I wasn't scared of the presence. It was a delightful presence. It wasn't judgmental. It was forgiven, like I had never felt before. And what's this kid from New York City going to do? What are you going to say? How do you tell your family? How do you tell your family about this event? I didn't even know what it meant. So I didn't tell anyone. And after about two weeks, this young man who had shared with me asked me, he says, Jim, have you accepted Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, because you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something's different about you. And I said, I feel different. And I told him this experience that had happened to me. And he gave me a little Gideon's New Testament, a little green New Testament. And and shortly after that, I started reading the Bible every day. And I've read it every day of my life since then. And I, now I start in Genesis, and I read all the way through to Revelation. When I'm done, I start again. And I've just been doing this for, for uh, I don't know, not quite 40 years, but maybe 38 years I've been doing this. Long time. And, and uh, it really changed something in me. And I had, I had great mentoring by Christian men, and, and it... it changed the way I thought. It, it changed my desires in life of who I wanted to marry, the things that I wanted to do, the caring for people. I had lots of struggles. But what was interesting is, is uh, 
I had a lot of struggles when I got saved. And many of them you know, took years to work through. But that pornography thing that it had such a grasp on me that Jesus used to convict me of my sin, that night, November 7, 1977, the desire was gone. And if you've ever been addicted to something and the desire just goes immediately, it is, it is amazing. Jesus used that to convict me of my sins. And then He showed me His power by deliverance from that. That's what happened to me. And I've never been attracted back into it. So, what about science? So I started studying more and more science, and science has never shaken my faith. I, I just grew in faith, and it was very important to me, and it's never shaken my faith. And, and let me read something from Lord Kelvin. Lord Kelvin, we name our, 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 um, our Kelvin temperature scale from him. He was a, 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 a thermodynamicist. He was a, one of the originators of thermodynamics. And he said in around 1870, I've long felt that there was a general impression that the scientific world believes science has discovered ways of explaining all the facts of nature without adopting any definite belief in a creator. I've never doubted that impression was utterly groundless. He goes on to say, the more thoroughly I conduct scientific research, the more I believe science excludes atheism. I think I, if you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to the belief in God, which is the foundation of all religion. You know, and I, I feel that, that my faith has made my science all the more exciting. Because when I look at things, I'm just amazed by it. I remember we were building a, 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 a synthetic brain, and we called it a synthetic brain, and DARPA said we couldn't call it that because the press would go crazy. And it was, it was just trying to build a switching device where we could put general inputs and it would come out with solutions. And, and, uh, and we were just trying to get little things to happen, AND gates, OR gates, just little logic patterns from a, from a disordered array of molecules in a, in, a, in, a, in a box, essentially, but a platform on a chip. Disordered array and giving voltage pulses. And... Uh, um, then I remember my son running to me when he was only about four, year, four or five years old and I, just all this action and I'm looking at him and thinking, God, how did you do it? When you think of the human brain, it's just so amazing. And I remember even watching a mosquito just come. And in that little package of that little brain is all this sophistication that gives him this coordinated flight. Then he lands and he stings and what he does is he emits small molecules to call other mosquitoes to say, here's fresh meat, come. I mean, there's all this sophistication to build all that in a little package. It's just utterly amazing when you try to build something that will give you logic functions. And then you think of, of what biology gives you. You just get all excited. You know, there's a guy named Ronald Ross. He discovered that malaria come, is a parasite that lives in the mosquito's stomach. He lived in, in the end of the 1800s, and at that time they thought that malaria came from swamps, the aroma, the sulfur aroma that rises from swamps. But he, he uh, uh, was working in India, and he was a believer. He was a Christian, and he was seeking, what is it that gives malaria? And he had had this notion that it came from the mosquito, but on, on the night that he discovered this, that he actually saw the parasite in the stomach of the mosquito, he wrote this to his wife. He says, this day relenting God has placed within my hand a wondrous thing, and God be praised at His command. 
seeking his secret deeds with tears and toiling breath, I find thy cunning seeds, O miserable, murdering death. I know this little thing a myriad men will save. O death, where is thy sting, thy victory, O grave? And in this, you can see the melding of his knowledge of the Scriptures with his excitement of the discovery that he had gotten. And this is what I feel that that science does for my faith. It adds this excitement to it. It has never shaken my faith. So, you know, if you think of a cell, a cell is an amazing machine. Just one cell. It is a factory inside a cell. The chemistry that goes on in a cell is utterly amazing. More than we can do as human beings synthetically with all of our tools. It's just amazing. It wants to, how, do you, how do you get things in a factory from point A to point B? Somebody comes with a forklift, picks it up, or these racks overhead that you, know, you see stuff in factories just going passing all. This is exactly what happens in a cell. There are these tubules which, go from, which will be constructed very rapidly from point A to point B, and then materials run along these tubules from point A to point B. And then the tubules break up and then get resynthesized in another location. Because if it left all those tubules in place, the cell would die because it builds in all this rigidity. Plus, there's not enough, a, 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 enough pieces to build all of these all over. So it deconstructs and reconstructs. It's really amazing what's happening in a cell. We don't know the mechanisms. Many of the mechanisms within a cell, we don't understand how they operate. So what we do is we ask questions. How does it operate? And we go investigating. So the question, how does it work, spawns further research. You see, this is how research is done. You ask a question, you propose some hypothesis, and then you go looking. The question never scares a scientist. Never scares a scientist. Except in one area. You know, students often ask me, what do I think about evolution? And I I don't talk about it a lot, but I look at things from a chemical perspective. Remember I was talking about... uh, I was talking about seeing molecular structure in everything. Everything is molecular structure. So I look at things molecularly. And all of my colleagues are Darwinists. All of them. And I love them as people and I deeply respect them as scientists. And I hope they feel the same about me. And people have different definitions of Darwinism. And, and, but for the definition here tonight, Darwinism holds to the ra- that random mutation and natural selection account for the complexity of life. That's what... That's what uh, 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 Darwinism says, that random mutation and natural selection account for the complexity of life. The thing that most often impacts my Darwinist colleagues is that when, they're, when they see me, a person of faith, that is skeptical about Darwinian mechanisms accounting for the complexity of life. Now remember, in science you can ask questions. Except in this area, because when you ask a question in this area, it bothers people. And we'll look into why that might be. And I don't want to be attacking a, an attacking criti- critic. I only want to learn. I want to learn. So I ask them to explain for me evolution from a chemical perspective. Ask them. It's a simple question. <clears throat> if it's so simple 
that a middle schooler can understand it. Okay, colleagues, explain to me evolution from a chemical perspective so that I can start to understand the chemistry. Because what happens is if you fly over a cell, if you just walk over a cell or something, you don't even notice it. Now, if you look at a cell with a magnifying glass, you might say, oh, look at that blob of protoplasm. Big hunk of jelly. But if you start peering into that cell, and if you could see the chemistry taking place, you would go, wow, this is amazing. It's not until you get into it that you really see it. If you fly over New York City at 30,000 feet, you go, oh, there's a city. You have no idea of what's happening in that city until you get down in that city and you see the infrastructure of that city, the trash pickup, the snow removal. You go underneath the city. You see the sewage going out. You see the, 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 the conduits and the, and, and the wiring. I mean, it's just so complex. I mean, imagine you put thousands of people in these tall skyscrapers living in these. I mean, how do you handle the sewage? I mean, it's just amazing. It's just really amazing. How do you handle the airflow? So I put this on my website. I don't know how long it's been there, at least 10 years. And it says this. It says, some are disconcerted or even angered that I signed a statement back in 2001, along with 700 other scientists, that says, quote, we are skeptical of the claims of the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged, unquote. That's it. That's it. It says, we are skeptical, therefore, there should be careful examination. You do this in everything. I don't, I'm skeptical of your proposal on how a cell works. It warrants further investigation. Sure, come on in, let's start investigating. This is what science does. But this statement has become a moral touchstone for the scientific community. People who have signed this statement have been ostracized from professional societies. You say, why? They didn't say Darwinian evolution is a bunch of garbage. We can't disprove it. Just say, we're inviting, we want to do further investigation. That's it. You do this in every field, except this one. I go on, I write, I simply do not understand chemically how macroevolution could have happened. Hence, am I not free to join the ranks of the skeptical and assign such a statement without reprisals from those that disagree with me? Furthermore, when I, a nonconformist, ask proponents for clarification, they get flustered in public and confessional in private, wherein they sheepishly confess that they really don't understand either. Whenever I have asked my colleagues, many of them professors here at Rice, some of them Nobel Prize winners, some of them National Academy of Science members, privately in my office. Say, Do you understand the chemistry behind macroevolution? They've always said no. When I've asked them in small groups where there's other chemists there, what they say to me is nothing. They just stare at me. I ask you a question and you stare at me. That's not how communication works normally, right? So no answer... When you're having a dialogue, no answer is an answer in itself. And then when I ask them in public, they get angry with me. I'm just asking you to explain to me what you understand, because I don't understand it. So I put this on my website. 
Well, that's all I'm saying. I do not understand, I go on to say, but I, but I am saying it publicly as opposed to privately. Does anyone understand the chemical details behind macroevolution? If so, I'd like to sit with that person and be taught, so I invite them to meet with me. Lunch will be my treat. Until then, I will maintain that no chemist understands. I've been misquoted all over the place, saying, I, Tour says, no scientist understands, or Tour says, nobody understands. I said, no, biologists, they fly over 38,000 feet, they understand this. But no chemist understands is what I said. Hence, we are collectively bewildered. And I have not even addressed the origin of life, of first life issues. For me, that's even more scientifically mysterious than evolution. Ten years it's been up there. Nobody's come. You know, there's more chemical engineers in the city of Houston than any city in the world. You would think somebody would say, free lunch? I'll take them up on it. The Atheist Society of America contacted me and said, they'll buy the lunch. And they encouraged their members to go. Go to uh, take this guy out to lunch. You, you, you who live in Houston, go take him to lunch. I said, look, it'll be on me. Nobody's come. Some people have said they've come, and I said, look, we're going to have no cameras there. It's just you and me. Explain it to me. And I won't even ask a single question until I un stop understanding. If I don't understand, I'm going to ask you a question. Some people say, well, if there's no TV cameras, I'm not coming. Huh? I thought this is the whole idea. You're going to explain to me. I just wrote an article on abiogenesis. Abiogenesis is, is the prebiotic pre process wherein life, such as a cell, arises from non-living simple organic compounds. And those for life as we know it are carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins. Those are the four classes of compounds. Nobody knows, nobody knows how you get these things. Yeah, sure, you can mix a few little things together and get a few pieces of tiny little pieces, all racemic and all a mess of things. And I just took the whole prebiotic. I went into the most recent papers on prebiotic chemistry. I wanted to understand, how do they pull this thing off? And I started reading the experimental conditions. It's not prebiotic experimental condition. Adjust the pH to this, cool it 63 degrees for two hours, and then warm this, then add this. How do you do this in a prebiotic environment? And so I went on to say I show that the strongest evidence against proposals of current prebiotic research is the researcher's own data. The current proposals can retard the field of discovery because the scientific, for scientific solutions, since they seem to be directing researchers down paths of futility, and I go on to write that, that uh, uh, you should, you, you should um, let students know something about this. So here's what I do. I say, okay, let's give prebiotic proposals a chance. Let's assume that all the building blocks for life, not just the precursors, but all the building blocks could be made in high degrees of purity, including homochirality, where applicable, for all the carbohydrates, all the amino acids, all the nucleic acids, and all the lipids. And let's further assume that they're comfortably stored in cool caves, away from sunlight and away from oxygen, so as to be able to stand environmental degradation. Let's further assume that they all exist in one comfortable corner of the Earth and not separately by thousands of, separated by thousands of kilometers or in different planets. And that they all existed not just in the same square kilometer, but in neighboring pools where they can conveniently mix with each other. Now what? How do they assemble? Without enzymes? The mechanisms do not exist for their assembly. 
It will not happen and there is no synthetic chemist that will claim differently because to do so would take enormous stretches of conjecture beyond anything that is realized in the field of the chemical sciences. Then I say, let's go further. Let's assemble the dream team. Let's further assume, not that it's just a bunch of prebiotic stuff, let's assume that the world's top 100 synthetic chemists, plus top 100 biochemists, plus top 100 evolutionary biologists, Combine forces in the limitlessly funded dream team. The dream team has all the carbohydrates, lipids, amino acids, and nucleic acids stored in the freezers in their laboratories. All are in 100% enantiomeric purity. Even give the team all the reagents they wish and the most advanced laboratories and analytical facilities and the complete scientific literature and synthetic and natural yet non-living coupling agents. Now ask the dream team to assemble their building blocks into a living system. Nothing complex, just a single cell. They will merely scratch their heads and walk away frustrated. But even give them the polymerized forms, the polypeptides, all the enzymes they desire, the polysaccharides, DNA, RNA, in any sequence they desire, cleanly assembled. Ask the dream team to assemble those into a living system. The level of sophistication in even the simplest of possible living cells is so chemically complex that we are even more clueless than with anything discussed on prebiotic chemistry. The dream team will not know where to start. Moving all this off Earth does not solve the problem because our physical laws are universal. Do you see the problems that I struggle with trying to think of a scientific solution? And all my friends who know this and presumably understand this, none of them will come and explain it to me. It's such a simple thing. What does this tell you where we are with science? Has science buried God? It can't even make a single cell. I give you every piece of it. I once had a, a group of scientists sitting in my home, and I told my children, I said, watch this. I said to them, I'll give you a cell. That cell has just died. Just died. So everything's all about where it should be. You got the membranes and everything's all just died. Can you bring it back to life? What is it that was lost and can you bring it back to life? They never got to the part, could they bring it back to life? They couldn't even agree on what it means that it died. What was lost? One said, oh, the ionic potentials and the enzymologists. Oh, no, 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 no. It's much more than... They couldn't even agree on what life was, let alone bring the thing back to life. That's where we are as far as scientists. We think we're so clever. But there's many things we don't know. Those that think that scientists understand the issues of prebiotic chemistry are wholly uninformed. Nobody understands. Maybe one day we will, but that day is far from today. So to make ad hominem attacks upon those who are skeptical of science to date can be inhibitory to the progress of science. Would it not be helpful to express to students the massive gaps in our understanding so that they, as the next generation of academic soldiers, could seek to propel the field upon a firmer and possibly a radically different scientific basis rather than upon increasingly ambitious extrapolations that are entirely unacceptable in the practice of chemistry? The basis upon which we as scientists are relying is so shaky that it would be best to openly state the situation for what it is, a mystery. That might catalyze some fresh scientific thoughts on abiogenesis. So what's the outcome of my skepticism? What's the outcome? 
Have I been denied tenure? No, I haven't been denied tenure. I got it in 1993 before these issues became more significant. Nobody cared. Few people cared about this. Plus, I'm not an, a, a biologist, so it's not my main field. Have I ever lost funding? Maybe, but not that positively identified. Have I had harassment? Not to any significant degree. Ridicule sometimes, but it's often not directed to my face. It's, it's behind my back. Confrontations, yes, but these are often diffused with a few questions. I just ask a few questions. Could you explain to me how you can get evolution of a complex system? Boom, that's it. Stop. Because they can't mess around with the chemistry with me. It's all oh, on the back of an enzyme that did... No, no, explain this to me. What do you mean on the back of an enzyme? It did, did, enzyme did what? Have I not been hired for a position? I suspect so. Have I been excluded from professional societies? Yes. But as a Christian, I take stock in what Charles Spurgeon said. Those who criticize us are probably no more mistaken than those who praise us. Try to win your critics with double kindness. Here's the hope that I see, which involves you. Science is self-correcting. If Darwinian theory is correct, the chemical description will become evident. As of today, in my opinion, there's little such evidence, so further investigation is warranted. I can never disprove Darwinism. I don't want to. I just want to understand this stuff that everybody else understands. I wish I could see what they see. But maybe I know too much. I suppose more than 95% of scientists never think about confronting anyone on these issues. They're too busy with other things. The younger generation has a deeper sense of social fairness and justice, and they are less impressed with conformal academic fluff. That's my hope for the future, that you guys have this amazing sense for social fairness, and you're not going to exclude people from your societies just because they don't buy into something that you yourself can't understand. And my primary mission is that I'm, I'm, I'm called to reflect the love of Christ. Max Planck, uh, you may have heard of Planck's constant, which we use all the time in chemistry and physics. He wrote this. He says, A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light. So I'm not, I'm not supposing that my opponents are all of a sudden going to say, Yes, Tour is right. <sighs> Here's what he says. He says it's not by convincing opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die. They eventually die. And that's what I think is going to happen. The older generation is going to die. And younger people are going to come up and say, hey, I don't understand this thing either. And then we're going to come around to saying, okay, let's start to find out what mechanisms there might be. So is science buried God? Not for me. I'll open it up for questions and uh, address what I might be able to. Thank you. You don't have to text it in. You just, <laughs> just ask. Yes. Yes. 
Right. So, you, you know, I, I'm not the one who coined the term macroevolution and microevolution, and it wasn't those who were skeptical that coined those terms. Those terms have been in the literature long before these issues arose. What we clearly see is we see small variations, small variations we, we can see in the laboratory all the time. And these variations, these small variations can be beneficial. It's when we consider a host of small variations turning into big variations of complex structure so that we get functional changes in complex systems. That's where we don't see it because the molecular pictures are very hard to envision. Now, there are mnemonics. There are mnemonic models that we use in chemistry all the time that are very helpful for understanding. We draw electrons of a nucleophile going and attacking and, and something. And these are terrific models. And using these models, we build all sorts of structures. But we know that these aren't real. We teach these students these electron pushing as models. A lot of this is... Yeah, it's not real. A lot of this is charge, is charge transfer. This charge transfer that occurs rather than this pushing of, a, of an electron. So we use them as models and they can be extremely predictive and helpful. But when you really want to get down and dirty with it, you have to take hold of it at a chemical level and it becomes very hard to grasp. This is why chemists have such trouble with it. So much so that they, they, they don't even want to express it because it, it, it fights against the status quo. And the few who will say, the emperor has no clothes or its clothes are really wearing thin, get in real trouble for it. That's when good science stops. Because if, if we can't say something's wrong with this, we can't do good science anymore because it's an area that's now we can't touch and it's become like a religion. What do you do in religion? You get upset when people start probing you. Hey, that's my religion. Don't, don't go there. So when we don't have answers to things, we want to we, we silence people. And that's what I feel is being done. And so what happens is we get generation after generation of potential researcher that can help us figure this thing out. And we're told, don't go there. Because if you go there, you're going to be excluded from societies. So I agree, it is, it is, it is a tremendous model. Some people have said that, that, you know, I shouldn't talk like this unless I have a better model. Well, how would you feel if... If there was a, a, a person that was, um, that, was, that was presumed to have committed a crime, that person was under arrest, and the district attorney was bringing that person to court and was going to try them on extremely fil flimsy evidence. But the district attorney said, the reason I'm doing it is because I don't have anyone else better to bring in. We would, we would cry, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. And we know that that happens. I mean, sometimes there's such pressure on governments to find, you know, this killer. Bring in anybody you can. And, and uh, uh, so this is, I feel, that, that's, that, that is what's happening. When we tell our students about a mechanism, we don't say, no, you can't, you can't exclude this mechanism until you have a better one. No, we say, if the facts, if the mechanism doesn't completely fit the facts, Either you revise your mechanism to fit the facts or we throw it out. So you have to revise your mechanism to fit the facts or we throw it out. We don't say, no, you can't say anything negative about this mechanism until you can offer me an alternative. We don't do that. This field, we've done it. 
So I, I see it very differently. When you build molecules... So this article that I wrote that's entitled Abiogenesis Nightmare, hopefully will be published within three months or so. I go through what it takes to build a complex system, purely synthetically, and I use our nanocars as an example. We have wheels and axles and a motor. That, what does it take? And then I go through 11 criteria that are important. Then I take prebiotic chemistry proposals and go through those same 11 criteria, and every one of them falls apart. When you go through the criteria of what it takes to build with molecules, it becomes really shaky. And that's all I'm saying. So if those who really understand it well, and I hope that I've convinced you is, if anybody understood it really well, they would have come and talked to me. I'm not a mean guy. I, and I told him, and I even wrote on my website, I won't, ask, I won't say a word until I stop understanding. Then I'm going to ask you for clarification. So that was a long answer to a short question, but have I done okay with your question? Thank you. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah, I can tell you. How, so what happened with that statement? So I got an email from I don't even remember who. Do you agree with this statement? Is that some, something you could agree with? Have you ever had like a hundred emails you had to plow through? And this thing pops up. And I said, yes. Boom. It was gone. Like two years later, I find out I'm on some list. And the ramifications of being on that list were enormous. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What's this list? When did I do? Then I remembered some email that came through from I don't even know who, who it was. But I read the statement. And as I read the statement, I said, hey, I agree with that. I agree with it. So why should I be ashamed? I, I agree with it. That 700 has now become, I don't know how many thousand since I wrote this document. But it has become very hard on them. So, for example, when, um, when colleagues wouldn't put me up for an award, I'd say, why? Because you signed that statement. I said, look at my accomplishments. And they'll say to me, you have done, and this is exactly what they said, you have done twice as much as other people getting this award but you'll never get put up for this because you signed that statement. What does that tell you about social fairness? What does that tell you about whether this is science or a religion? Those are the ramifications of this. And I used to keep really quiet about this till this stuff started happening. I said, okay, you know, I, I, I don't talk about this, but if you guys are going to do this to me, then I'm coming out of the closet. And I'm going to start proclaiming this and tell people about what's going on, but I've never mentioned a name. And my colleagues respect me for that. In fact, when I was writing this article on abiogenesis, I emailed several people around this campus and I said, what do I not get about prebiotic chemistry? I'm not getting it. Help me out here. Several of them didn't even reply. Again, no answer is an answer in itself. And me writing them an email is different than you writing them an email. All right? <laughs> they really should reply to me. It was a very nice email, and I, I said, you know, here are things I don't understand. Others, others uh, uh, sent me a few references. One sat down with me and said, and, and he works in these areas. 
And he said to me, Jim, I don't want to be quoted. I said, you know I won't quote you. He says, we have no idea. We have no idea. That's the reality of it. I sat with a, a, a uh, biophysicist in Israel. And he was talking about there's a, there's a part of the ear where there's a, there's a bar that vibrates when we listen. And that bar has a different modulus, a different stiffness along the entire bar. That's very hard to, to mechanically put into a system. And he's describing this to me. And it's because of that different modulus as you go along the bar that gives us this tremendous tonal differences that we can, we can discern. And as he's talking, I said to him, how does something like this evolve? So this is a biophysicist in Israel. He looks at me and says, Oh, Jim, you know, everybody believes in evolution, but we have no idea how it happened. And I appreciated the frankness. I really did. We believe in it, but we have no idea how it happened. So this is what's happening in the back room. So what I'm doing is I'm telling the world what goes on in the back room of sciences. What was your question? Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think I did, about the, the people who signed this. Okay. Yes. How do you convince people that Jesus is the one true God? You know, this, this actually came up last night. And I, I, you know, I really appreciated the answer that we, we, we need to show respect for everybody's faith. We really do. And, and when I... And, and he, uh, um, John Lennox said, in, in a sense, that some of his atheist friends can put him to shame as far as a human being. And I have some Muslim friends who are as kind and gracious and devoted and, and uh, loyal friends. So it's not that, but the analogy that he used is very often the same analogy that I use. And that's that what makes Christianity so different is that I am forgiven. That day, on November 7, 1977, when I gave my heart to Jesus, he did not say, throw away all your... your your pornographic magazines, you straighten out this in your life, this in your life, this in your life, and this in your life. And then, then I'll accept you into heaven, maybe. I mean, He forgave me. And then when I look at my life, I, am, I see that I am utterly unable to work my way into heaven. God being perfect, absolutely perfect, if I went in there, I'd mess it up. And... and uh, um, so, there is this freedom that I have in Jesus Christ. And then, the other testimony that I have is this, is I know what God has done in my own life. What He has done in my own life. And that's not to exclude what other people might say, what their religion has done in their lives. But I came from a faith of Judaism, which I, I'm still a Jew. I mean, when you're born a Jew, you're going to die a Jew. And, and, uh, um, but I never had that sort of power over sin or the desire to want to do well like I do now. When that man, Jesus, appeared in my room and I couldn't see him, but the sense of his presence was so real, 
I never want to upset this one who has been so good to me. And so often I fail him, but the forgiveness of God is there. When I read the Scriptures, I just I pray and I say, Lord, speak to me through the Scriptures, and they come alive. So my experience is not vast. I haven't, del- I haven't uh, uh, delved into all the different religions that are out there and tried them all. I haven't read extensively like John Lennox. I came from a Jewish faith, a secular Jewish faith, and I was never a devoted Jew. I was a secular Jew. And, and, uh, but there was one thing in my home that was unusual, is that we never spoke against Jesus. My parents never said a negative word about Jesus. And in many Jewish homes, they do. They say negative words about Jesus, and that's why it's often so hard to get my Jewish friends to even listen to me about these things because they've been so pro them. And even when I've had Jewish friends say, oh, you know, I, I understand the Father, I understand the Holy Spirit, but Jesus I have problems with. I say, that's because you're Jewish. I've never had a Chinese person from China come and I start telling them about, about, about the Lord. They never say to me, I have a problem with Jesus. It's just, it's just not there. And so that's the one thing from my home that Jesus was never spoken against. And so for me, I really sense this. And this is unique. This is really unique. And at the core, religions are very different. People say, well, religions are basically the same. It's little things that are different. It's just the opposite. It's actually, it's actually at the core, we're very different. In Islam, God has no son. God does not beget. In Christianity, God has a son, an only begotten son named Jesus Christ. I mean, how much more fundamental can you get? It's the peripheral things that may be similar, but at the core, many of these are starkly different. I'm not sure that I answered your question very well, but, you know, I'm a chemist. So I'm outside of my depth on that one. Yes. Okay, I, I only heard about 80% of what you say, so just, just repeat that again. Okay, all right, so the question is, is when I'm reading the Bible, are the things that, that come up that I don't understand? Like every day. Every day. But it's, it's, it's never anything that shakes my faith. And sometimes I think I've gotten great revelations on something. I, I think I got a great revelation. And, and I want to make sure that I'm not shooting from the hip. So, so I'll check some commentaries. Is, it, is this mainline thought? And then they clarify it. Well, you know, at this time, this, this is, you know, so I get clarification. So I'm constantly learning through the Scriptures. And I, I teach the Bible so much. It's so much of what I do that I'm forced into to, to pulling out of it and saying, Lord, what is happening? But I love it. I mean, to me, this is, this is the fun of it, to learn new things. I say, Lord, speak to me through the Scriptures. And then passages that I have read for decades all of a sudden come alive. And I'm like, whoa, I never saw this before. So yeah, there, there's lots of things that I don't understand. But the, the lack of understanding has never caused me to question my faith. It never has. 
And I know, you know, there are struggles that come up in people's lives. I'm just telling you, it's never caused me to question my faith. And, and uh, do doubts sometimes come in? Yeah, doubts race through my mind like in anybody else's mind. But it's never caused me to stray from my faith. I mean, I love Jesus so much. I know what He has done in my life. I know what He's done in my family. You, you know, it, it was, it's hard to tell a Jewish family that you believe Jesus is the Messiah. You know, they don't, they don't embrace you for that. And, and, uh, but my family gave me some room and they thought it was a fad and it would just go away. You know, my, my, my sister had been into things when she, she was going through her teen years. My brother had been into things and they kind of grew out of that and they thought I'd grow out of this. But it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And then my mother, at the age of 72, came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But my parents have seen my life, my family, my wife, my children, and, and the dynamic of what the, has gone on. And they see that there is something really here that's quite amazing because they've seen the things that my brother and my sister, although they're very accomplished in the secular and academic world, they've had amazing struggles in other areas that by the grace of God I was freed from because I was obeying the Scriptures. They kept me out of lots and lots of trouble. In fact, I'll share one story with you. My mother used to say to me, now I have four children, she used to say to me, my oldest daughter was going to really give me a hard time when she became a teenager because I've so cloistered her. So, um, my daughter was 15 years old. My mother was visiting us here in Houston. She went up into the bedroom and had about a two-hour conversation with my 15-year-old daughter who has never been a moment of trouble to us. And my mother walked out of there and shortly after that became a Christian. <laughs> and that daughter who I have cloistered, I sent off to Israel alone at the age of 16 to live there for a summer. And then she lived there for two years as an undergraduate and then moved there and now she's a mediator between Palestinians and Israelis and trying to bring peace between them, speaking Hebrew and Arabic, things that she learned here at Rice. And that's the cloistered little girl who I'm trying to overly protect. Yes. Yeah. You know, that, that's, do, do I have a passage where, because of chemistry, that really stands out to me? I, I, you know, there are some passages that have really encouraged me. Um, I don't know if it's because of chemistry. It's not science-related. I don't see a whole lot of science. You know, there are people that read the Scriptures and pull out all sorts of science, and they say, you know, this matches up with this. And, and that's great. I, you, you know, I, I'm less of that, but I love the Word of God so much. For example, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies or my meditation and I understand more than the age for I have observed thy precepts. 
That's from Psalm 119, verse 97 onward. And, and uh, it says that he will give you more insight than all your teachers if you make the Word of God your meditation. And I have had the great blessing of being trained by some of the best chemists in the world. The man with whom I worked for with my Ph.D., 30 years after I got my Ph.D. with him, he won the Nobel Prize in in chemistry. I mean, he was really good. The man that he worked for won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. So I've been groomed by really great men. And I remember what the Lord promised in His Word. He'd give me more insight even than them. And and He he drops in confirmation. You know, that... that, And... and, uh, uh, before my professor won the Nobel Prize, which was in 2010, this was in about 2005, he saw me give a presentation. He walked up to me and says, he says, Jim, you've surpassed me. You surpa-. And I'll tell you, that to me was enough confirmation that what it said in the Scriptures. And it doesn't say that he's going to do this with just your Bible teachers. He said, if you make the Word of God your meditation, He will give you more insight than all your teachers it's teachers. It's not specific. It is teachers. That's what he promised. And I was going to believe that. Other things that I take hold of. It, it says, um, praise the Lord. How blessed is the Lord. How, how, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who keeps his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed in Psalm 112. There's a promise for our children that as I keep his commandments, the generation of the upright will be blessed, that that He is going to make them great on this earth, it says. That's His promise to me for my children. And you will see one day when you have children that you want better for them than you want for yourself. That's the promise I hold on to for them. So I take scriptural passage and I hold on to it. And and, uh, out of Isaiah, I used to just, I grabbed this when I was a sophomore and I've held it ever since. Just talking about his security for me. His security for me that he's going to take it. And I've taken many verses on on God's security for me. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's in in, in Isaiah 41.10. That he is going to take me and he's going to uphold me. And I just envision myself. God's holding me in his hand. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I remember in, in graduate school, we would have physical chemistry exams every Wednesday. I mean, I don't know what was with this guy in exams. Every Wednesday he gave us a test in physical chemistry. And, and uh, I remember falling on my knees and I said, Lord, you said you would uphold me. Uphold me, Lord. And I would come out of that time of prayer just like a roaring lion. I mean, God took me from being a wimp to being a lion again that morning. And this has been my life. You know, I always feel inadequate for the task. And you say, oh, no, you know so much. No, I always feel inadequate for the task. And He makes me adequate. So He strengthens me through His Word. So the Word of God for me is my constant strength. Because I feel inadequate, always. I felt inadequate for tonight. And I was praying this afternoon. I don't know what I'm going to say. I didn't even have a talk prepared. And John Lennox said he's got a talk prepared. And so people were emailing me. What's the subject of the talk tonight? Uh, nothing. <laughs> because I felt totally inadequate. But this is the story of my life. And then God upholds me. Yes.
Okay, wait, can, can, I, can I answer that one first? Because I'm going to get really confused because I, I hardly understood what you were saying. But, but evolution has nothing to do with my faith. I take this only because it has become the touchstone for others, not for me. Not for me. I just say I haven't understand it. I haven't understood it. But imagine if somebody should come up to you and say, you shall not graduate because of a statement you signed. And that statement had nothing to do with joining the Ku Klux Klan or something like that. But something as innocuous as I don't understand the mechanism of something and it warrants further investigation. How would you feel? All this work you've done and you can't graduate and have a degree like your buddies? It's not an issue for me. It's been thrust upon me. It has nothing to do with my faith. When I read the Scriptures, it's evolution. It's not, and if someone were to come with the, the perfect experiment that shows that you know, from, from a single cell, all of the complexity of life, human beings, blue whales, whatever, came, it wouldn't shake my faith one bit. Wouldn't shake my faith one bit. I just try to understand in the light of the scriptures what that means within the light of the scriptures, but it wouldn't shake my faith one bit. So so evolution has nothing to do with my faith. It's just been thrust upon me. You see what I mean? Yes. Right, right. And, 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 and it's reconciled under the topic, has science buried God? Right, so, right. So there's two, there, there's the science and there's the God, and I was trying to sh- talk about both. But go, go ahead with your second question. My second question is, you say that science bolsters your belief in God? Yes. Right. I, I don't think science proves God. So, some, sci- some Christians would say so because you see the complexity and it proves that. That to me is not a proof of God. So, so to me, it bolsters the excitement of the Lord when I see the complexity of life. But it doesn't prove God. I, I, I mean, if God wanted to prove himself, I, I thought, you know, when, when we first saw DNA, what if written in the DNA, Jesus was here? You know, something. I mean, he, he could have really, really done it if he wanted to. You know what I mean? And could have, ah, oh, yeah, all right. These Christians were right all the time. He could have really done it. And, and uh, um, so, so it doesn't prove God because, because um, he keeps us seeking the beauties of this thing. And... Uh, um, so for me, it, 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 it's not a proof of God. And I, I hold my, myself to the same standards that I hold my colleagues. Um, people say, am I a proponent of intelligent design? And I say specifically on my website, I, don't label me with intelligent design. I am not part of the intelligent design movement. Not that I'm against it, but the reason I don't want to be part of it is just because it is not... I don't see it in Darwinian evolution. I don't now say, therefore, it must be 
the God of Israel that has done this. I mean, that to me doesn't make sense. If I'm going to hold my colleagues to say, you show me a chemical mechanism, you show me the NMR spectra, you describe to me how the molecules come together, you have to do it at that level. I have to hold myself to that too. I can't then just a priori throw this at the doorstep of God. All right? So I, I, I'm, I, I don't like to be thrown in with ID because I've even asked the, the biggest sellers of ID. I said, I, they've eaten in my home. I have them over to dinner so I can really... And, and I say, give to me the strongest chemical argument from intelligent design. And the guy said, uh, statistical. I said, okay, statistical, fine. Give me more chemistry-based. And uh, he, could, he could not give me a more chemical basis. So then I saw that it was, it was somewhat weak in, in giving me the chemical basis. And if I'm going to hold my colleagues to a chemical basis, I need to hold myself to it as well. I think they're hungry. <laughs> well, let's, let's thank Dr. Stewart again.